All right, so today we continue in this journey through the, the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, if you were not here uh, last week, man, I encourage you, not because I was the one preaching, but uh, it's just extremely important for the life and the health of the church uh, for you to stay up to speed with where we are and where we're heading, uh, not only in the text, but what Jesus is doing to us as a group of people, as a body of believers and uh, last week, we looked at the text in the first portion of chapter 21 that in most of your Bibles says the triumphal entry, in which I encouraged uh, you to scratch that out um, because it, it really um, was, wasn't very triumphal. And when you really study that portion of Scripture, you will quickly see um, a lot of, of things um, that was taking place and a lot of implications for us um, as believers as well. If you remember, Jesus is heading toward the holy city. He is heading towards Jerusalem. It is the Passover week. This is like the, the culmination of several different holidays kind of slammed into to one week for the Jewish people. And they were to make a pilgrimage toward the holy city uh, to pay a temple tax, to um, buy a lamb or to have a lamb that would be sacrificed for their sins, but then also for the sins of the nation. And so this was just an, a very exciting time for many of them. But, but as you know, that there is this rumors that are happening, that this, the aura of who Jesus the rabbi is, is just growing leaps and bounds as Jerusalem's population multiplies probably up to five times. And there's guesstimations there that um, a town smaller than Bowling Green uh, grew to be several hundred thousand, um, if not upwards to several millions uh, worth of folk when it was all said and done. So Jesus um, goes, and it is historical that many times on these occasions, the Jews would be waving palm branches, and they would be saying the term uh, coming from Psalm chapter 118, um, Hosanna, which means deliver us or save us now. Um, and so they're quoting Old Testament passages. This is probably tradition uh, for a lot of them. Uh, but save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and yet, for probably hundreds of years, there was no one heading toward the city that they could attribute those praises to or wave those palm branches in victory toward until this day. And as Jesus is coming there, the, again, the, the, the myth that is Jesus, he raises people from the dead, he heals people, he, he, he has all of these abilities, those miraculous gifts, and he is a, a teacher that when you listen to him, that even non-believers are, are turned toward them, their ears are turned toward this man named Jesus and so Jesus, as they are believing that he is the Messiah, um, these hundreds of thousands of people line the streets as they are heading there as well. And, and they're, again, waving Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because they believe that Jesus, or ultimately the Messiah, foretold in the Old Testament, is going to be a political figure. They believe that they have been under bondage for thousands of years, hundreds of years, and that Jesus is the new David, that he is the new uh, Solomon, that he is the, the new king of the holy city, and he is going to redeem it. He's going to take it back from the Romans, the pagans. He's going to set up a, a physical, political kingdom, 
And then he is going to enable, and they're going to get their land back. All the foreigners are going to be gone, and Jesus will reign there uh, with his people on the temple and inside the temple mound. But as we learned last week, Jesus comes riding in, not on a white horse, declaring victory or declaring war, but Jesus comes in riding on a symbol of peace. And so it's this weird paradox as the crowd are yelling out war cries. Jesus comes riding a lowly donkey, the symbol of peace. And as he tops a hillside, he looks at the city. And the the Gospel of Luke tells us that he begins to weep over these folks. Why is he weeping? Why is he weeping over the city? He's weeping over it because of their unbelief that they have really missed. It is a great example of people missing the point. And they had missed it. They had missed his entire ministry. They had missed why he and who he really was. And so we pick up on that in the Gospel of Mark. He tells us that Jesus, this two-mile donkey ride from Bethany, where Lazarus, his buddy who Jesus raised from the dead, lives, um, to the city. And again, all the people are expecting Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. But the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus rides into the temple that he scopes everything out, that he turns, and then he goes right back to Bethany. This is extremely anticlimactic as Jesus is, is weeping over the city, goes to the temple, and then heads back because it's late. Now, the events that we read about today and that we will teach on today um, happen the next day as Jesus goes back to the temple. In verse 12, we see that Jesus enters the temple. In some early manuscripts, and probably in even some of the other Gospels, and maybe even your translation, it may even say, and Jesus entered the temple of God. Now, it's very important for us to understand what that term is there, that the temple that Jesus is entering is, is not a temple to a false god, that it's, it's not a temple to one of the Roman uh, gods, but that it is the very house, it is the very place of God. I think that this nugget is extremely significant as this kind of plays out. Remember, the temple was created, it was instituted by God. In the Old Testament, he wanted a place of worship where he could physically rest inside of what's called the Holies of Holies. His spirit will indwell it. There's the Ark of the Covenant with all kinds of cool trinkets in it and that that inside the Holies of Holies and inside the Temple Mound was a place for you to get away from the busyness, get away from the distractions, come to this holy place and encounter Yahweh encounter the Lord. However, as we can see, um, the original purpose of God's temple quickly lost its original intent. This temple that was a place of worship, it was a place of prayer, it was a place of singing, it was a place of teaching, has now become a marketplace. And I've got a picture of the Temple Mound. Um, that I'd like to show you. Uh, this is a, an artist's rendition of the Temple Mound, and the, the temple had to be built over and over and over again because as judgment would have it, God would send other armies and allow them to destroy it. Why? Because of their disobedience. 
because of what they were using the temple for. And the temple was, again, the center of all of Judaism. Um, by the time that Jesus is born, there's a King Herod, and I think that this actual Herod is probably his son, but King Herod was in cahoots with the Roman government. And he was allowed by the Romans to be kind of a false king of the Jews and also to rebuild the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is about 35 acres, and it is it's crazy. You can read Josephus, all these Jewish historians. You can read the Bible. You can find out all kinds of information about how that this amazing structure was actually built. It's pretty much white stone or white marble, and, and most of it was covered in gold. It was considered to be one of the, the wonders of the world. People were completely mesmerized. It's said by some, some historians and some people that the gold was so bright that when the sun actually would hit um, the, the, the Temple Mount, that people would actually want to turn their eyes as it reflected ultimately what is believed to be the glory of God. But God's people would often fall into pagan worshiping. He would send other armies to destroy it, and then it would be rebuilt. The Temple Mount is it's kind of, you can't see it from this kind of one-dimensional drawing, but it builds up to what is known as the center there, that center room called the Holies of Holies. Right out from the Holies of Holies is called the Court of Israel, or also known as the Court of Men. From there, you see there's like four pillars right there. Um, that is called the court of women. Women were not allowed to go beyond that place. That's where Jewish women could hang out. And then all of that courtyard that you see surrounding it was known as the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. So you kind of see these steps and dimensions. Foreigners, Gentiles, if you're not a Jew this morning... If you're, not, if you're here and you're like us, you're a Gentile. So foreigners, people who are not nationalistically Jewish, um, they were allowed to be in this outer area. If you were a Jewish woman, you could go a little bit closer to God. If you were a Jewish man, you could go a little bit closer to God. And there was a place for the priest. And then one time a year, a priest who was chosen could go inside of the holies of holies and, um, you know, a really peace a God for, or to seek God's appeasement for the nation of Israel. Now, the passage that we read about today was taking place, and it tells us, in, inside of what is known as the, the court of the Gentiles. This is the outer court. This is, again, the only place on the entire Temple Mound where the Gentiles could go. Specifically, it was a place where Gentiles who had converted to Judaism could go and worship God. It was also a place for Gentiles who were just curious about who this Jewish God was could go and hear teaching. Um, they could watch the worship and, and find out more about this God named Yahweh. Now, when Jesus enters the temple on the first day, he scopes this out. And on the second day, he returns. But what does Jesus see when he gets there? He does not witness people praying. He does not see people singing. He does not um, pe see people reading the Old Testament or, or teaching. No, Jesus walks into the court of the Gentiles 
and it has become a flea market. There are animals and people running everywhere. The high priest, Ananias, it's actually known as Ananias' Bazaar. So the court of Gentiles becomes known as the chief priest's Bazaar. It becomes flea land, if you have ever driven out Three Springs Road. And inside of where people are to be worshiping, it is set up like a giant yard sale. And Jesus walks into that place. Imagine just for a moment the smells, the people. You know, I just imagined all week, I've, this is so weird what I'm about to tell you, but I've been sitting at my, my, my table and just thinking and trying to picture this. And I just, I just imagine like this guy like walking around like, get your lamb, get your lamb, you know, get your kosher pickle, get your kosher pickle. All right, just, I, this is what I just imagine. It is this kind of scene of just people bartering back and forth, people trying to sell you trinkets. If you've ever been to a foreign country, here in America, we only do that in the mall. That's why you never look at those people who are trying to sell you their butter in the middle of it. But if you go to a foreign country, people will about knock you down trying to sell you whatever trinket it is that they've had. And so they've, they have turned the court of the Gentiles into Walmart on Black Friday. Supposed to be a place of worship, and it is not. In Deuteronomy, the Bible tells us that a man and his wife or their family is on Passover to bring a lamb that they have raised up with them to the holy city as a sacrifice. But it appears as though as um, the people of God, the Jewish people, began to migrate further and further and further, it became just really inconvenient for them to bring a lamb possibly hundreds of miles and expect for it to get there without blemish. And so, what's taking place inside of the court of the Gentiles is that they've set up all of these opportunities for the pilgrims to buy lambs, or if you're really, really poor and you can't afford a lamb to be slain, then you can buy some pigeons or doves to cover your sin once they are sacrificed. So, on top of that, not only was it hard to bring a lamb from 200 miles, 100 miles away, 50 miles away, but also what began to happen in Judaism is that these people would come from foreign lands, they would migrate back to Jerusalem, and they would have to get their lamb approved by the priest. Well, the priest, full of sin, um, quickly began to realize that they could make a lot of money off of this. Because the lamb had to be without blemish, and it had to be approved by a priest. And so they saw it in their scheming as a way for them to make money. We're not going to improve any lambs. They have to be bought here. Come buy your yeah, pre-approved lamb. Come buy it, right? I mean, it's got the stamp of approval by these priests that are already there. And so no longer did people bring their lamb for home because every time they did, the priest would say, it's got blemishes. It's got a bruise, it's got a weird hair, something's wrong with its ear. It is not perfect. But these lambs over here, these birds over here, they're pre-approved. They are perfect. And so what they would do is, is 
The land that you could buy in Bethany maybe cost you five bucks. Inside the holy city, inside the court of Jerusalem, would cost you 50 bucks. So they began to inflate the cost of these animals, of these birds. One of my favorite places on the planet is a place called Disney World. But you can't find a 50-cent can of Coke there. All right? They got you. There's signs saying no, no food, outside food, right? If you've ever been to the movie theater with a mama who packs a big purse and it's full of White Castles like my mama did when we were kids. All right? And that is no joke. <laughs> she packed White Castles in her big suitcase purse into the movie for us. She'd pass them out because mama, we, we still got the big popcorn. But mom and dad didn't want to spend five to ten bucks on a soda we weren't going to drink, right? So once you're in the park, they got you. A very similar thing was taking place inside a place of worship, a place for people to worship God. And yet, there was great inflation. Have you ever noticed that we are people of convenience? Man, I, I love to stop by a Minute Mart and get a Coke and a candy bar. But have you ever noticed that if you go to where the Cokes are hot, you can get like a, a, a two liter of Coke for like a buck? But if you go to where it's cold, you get 16 ounces and it costs you a dollar and a half. Right? And it's, we buy it. Why? Because of convenience. We want it. We desire it. And that has, the place of God has become a place of convenience has become a place where you can make money, where the, the priests are making lots and lots of money off of these pilgrims because they've got them. Another thing that was happening was during the Passover, again, this is a biblical mandate that every Jewish male of age was to pay what is called a temple tax. Sadly to say, brothers and sisters, but ministry costs money. And from the very beginning, God sets it up as an opportunity for us to be generous as he did them because things cost money. Like those Bibles sitting next to you. Every week, we want to give those Bibles to people. Guess what? Those Bibles still aren't free. They're free to who we give them to. But they still cost money. Same way inside of even Jew Judaism, inside the early temple. Ministry did cost money, but also it was an act of worship to so sacrifice that we are investing in this ministry. We're investing in this mission. And so God appointed back in Exodus that a man of age is to give a certain percentage, uh, well beyond a tithe, but also a temple tax in order to support that ministry. But the priests found another way to make money. If you're coming from all these different foreign countries, you're coming with your money and your currency, and it probably has some sort of false god on it. Some picture of George Washington who isn't God, right? And so if you're coming as a pilgrim, you've got to exchange it to a, a currency that the priest want and can handle. And so there has to be an exchange for money. But instead of getting a penny, for you know a shekel if i have a if i have a penny and i need a shekel what would take place was is they would charge an interest or fee so instead of it being a perfect exchange rate a penny for a penny then it may cost you ten dollars to get some change 
Does everybody see what's taking place here? If you've ever been to a foreign country, you've seen that very thing. And the exchange rate can fluctuate crazy. When Laura and I were living in Minsk, Belarus, um, on the black market, we could get um, an exchange rate of 450,000 rubles for every dollar. If you went to the bank and exchanged it, it was 200,000 rubles. So guess where we went? The alley, <laughs> right? <laughs> the alley. And it was always felt shady. Um, and we were there as missionaries. And, I just, and we were doing it because people, the leaders were taking us to the alley. And I always felt like this is the shadiest thing ever to look at the guy, I mean, the Belarusian with the leather coat and the KGB watch. And these, you know, it's like, is that not how it was? It was shady, all right? Well, this is what's happening, but it ain't shady in the eyes of the money changers. This is a way for them to make money, all right? And they were doing it. So the poor were getting poorer, and the rich were getting richer. They would charge this exorbitant amount in this transaction fee. So we see two major problems here that Jesus sees. The first thing is the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could, it's the only place at the church that they could go to worship. It's impossible for them to get there. They cannot even go in there and worship because it, it's set up like a yard sale. And so they're having to, to dodge all, the, all these animals, all these people, all this commerce that is taking place, all this consumerism that is taking place, and it is, it is causing the nations not to be able to worship the one and only true God. Let us not forget, the nation of Israel was created by God. They were the weakest and the smallest. They weren't good looking, and God sovereignly chose them to do what? Bring glory and honor to him, but also to bless the nations. God has always been about missions. The second thing that royally ticks Jesus off is the poor are being exploited. The poor are being exploited. We got you. We're going to get more of your money. So again, poor, poor Jesus, the Bible tells us, Listen to what it says. And, and as Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So Jesus probably saw this on the first day. But Jesus is slow to anger. He goes back to Bethany. He sees what's happening in the house of God, and he goes back to Bethany. We don't know this for sure, but I, I, I'm imagining, being that the other pictures that we see of Jesus, that he's, he's praying, he's, he's thinking this through. He gets up the next morning, he goes back to the temple. These sorts of things are still taking place, and Jesus is filled with righteous anger. Notice what Jesus begins to do. He, he heads to the court of the Gentiles. He begins to, to run out all of the animals. Again, this is a packed joint, and one man is cleaning house. 
He goes to the animals. He runs them out. He goes to the sellers. He goes to the buyers. Imagine the scene for a moment. Animals are running everywhere. Birds are flapping through the air. You see tables being tossed up in the air and change and the sound of money hitting the ground and rolling as, as people are trying to scoop up and to gather their animals and, and get everything back together. Mark's gospel in the telling of this story, also tells us um, that Jesus refused people from carrying their stuff through the court of the Gentiles. What it appears as though is that, um, you know, we're always looking for a quicker route. And instead of walking all the way around the temple to get to the other side and do your business, people would take I don't know, whatever it was, their goods, their services, their groceries, whatever was happening, and they would walk through the court of the Gentiles. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, uh-uh, you take the long way. This is a place of prayer. This is a place of worship. He was mad at seeing a place where the Gentiles are, are supposed to be able to worship God, but they can't. He is um, anger and filled with wrath at, at seeing poor people being explo uh, uh, you know, exploited. While Jesus is clearing the ring, he's quoting two passages from the Old Testament. The Bible kind of condenses them. Jesus probably said them all, or at least his hearers would have knew exactly what Jesus was saying. My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. In Isaiah 56, 7, and then the second part of that was, and, but you make it a den of robbers. And that's from Jeremiah Seven. I've, I've, I've got a passage, I want to read those passages to you in their complete context because it, it just paints a beautiful picture for us this morning. And I think I've got a slide for you guys to read those with me. It says this in Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And he means the nations there. This place of worship is for all people. He goes on in quoting Jeremiah, which is a little bit longer passage, but man, just Jesus just knows what he's doing, maybe because he's God. Says this, in Jeremiah chapter 7, Verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim, proclaim there is this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel, Mend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you have truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or the shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, your trust in deceptive words to no avail. 
Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, go on doing these, only to go on and do these same abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? We see this picture inside the prophet Isaiah's words, but also in the prophet Jeremiah's words. That what is Jesus saying? What is, what is happening inside of Jeremiah? God, the prophet Jeremiah is warning God's people once again at the temple, and he's saying, here's the deal. You, you worship me on this given day, but the rest of your time, you're worshiping these other idols, and you're expecting to connect with me. You're expecting to have intimacy with me. You're expecting to be in relationship with me. You are missing it. Throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly having to send prophets. Man, I wish I had time this morning to read some more of these stories, but this seems to be the picture over and over and over again of the Jewish nations. They love God. They'll follow Him. He gives them the place of worship. Man, things are going well. They're being obedient. And then they begin to worship other gods on the sides. Maybe try to mix the, the mixture of idol worship and the worship of God. And yet God says, I will have no other God before me. Jesus, in this moment, brothers and sisters, established himself as the ultimate authority and the ultimate prophet as he marches to the center of all of Judaism and cleans house. Whose house? His. He cleans the Lord's house. It was common belief by many Jews that the Messiah would actually remove the Gentiles from Jerusalem and from the temple. Remember, who are the Jews believing that Jesus is going to, about to overthrow? Who, who do they believe that Jesus is about to come in and to set up his kingdom? This means that he's going to get rid of the Gentiles, the Romans. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't go after Rome. He doesn't go to the, the, the palace of Pilate. No, Jesus goes to the house of God. He goes to the temple. Instead of removing the Gentiles, he does the exact opposite. Instead of forcing them out and building up walls, he clears room for the nations to come and to worship God. He clears room for the very people the Jews were trying to keep out. As we see in the passage of Jeremiah, again, the Jews were expecting to live however they wanted to live, but connect to God no matter what. For 51 years, weeks out of the year the Jews could live however but this one week called Passover man we're going to connect to God if you have any Muslim friends that aren't really practicing we can see this practice inside of a lot of Muslim people it's called Ramadan they live however they want for most of the year and then the month of Ramadan 
fast and pray and do all these things. Why? Because it has no bearing on their lives until this specific time. And that's what is taking place inside of these Jewish people as well, is that they're living however, but then when it becomes a holiday or becomes serious for a week, they cast away their idols for a moment they travel to Jerusalem, they, they buy a lamb, they make a sacrifice, their sins are forgiven, and then they go right back to doing whatever they want to do and however they want to do it. At the center of this issue that Jesus is taking care of, at the core of it, is a worship problem. The temple, again, is created as a corporate place of prayer and study and worship of God, but it had become a place of exclusion of the nations, a place where poor people were oppressed. And all of those things are the exact opposite of what Jesus sets up and what ultimately the law sets up is that we are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. Look at verse 14. Notice what happens. Man, I, I love this, this picture here. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So Jesus has cleaned house. Was it perfectly clean? Was it spring cleaned? No. But it was empty. And all the, the people who were cast out by the, the Jewish people, the, the, the people, the religious who had, had removed the, the lame and the blind and the poor and the beggar. We get this picture, this Jesus removes all of the wealthy and the rich and the robbers and those who are oppressing these people and influx of the poor and the lame begin to fill this temple and Jesus begins to heal them. We will learn in the course of the next few months that pretty much every day Jesus goes back to the temple and he preaches and he teaches and he does these miracles because now, once again, his house has become a place of worship. The temple was about worshiping God and these men and women had been worshiping their nation and their money. And Jesus destroys both of those idols. As he came in on a, a burden, a beast of burden, a symbol of peace. And Jesus is peaceful, but brothers and sisters, Jesus is also filled with righteous anger and wrath. And he does this on this day because there is a major problem with the worship that is taking place. The chief priests, they begin to witness, what is Jesus doing? He's these dirty, nasty, poor people, these lame people, these blind people, these beggars. They're filling up the temple. And he's healing them. The Bible tells us that they, they become indignant, right? That they become furious is what that word means. They're mad at Jesus and they begin to ask these questions and and what is Matthew again shows us the beauty of children look at what it says verse 15 but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had did and the children crying out in the temple Hosanna the son 
of David. This made them furious. It made the chief priests furious. It made the priests, the religious leaders, furious. The day before, Jesus is weeping as their parents are are saying those exact same phrases but are missing who Jesus is. But who gets it? Let the little children come unto me. Jesus receives the praises of these kids, of these children. He accepts the worship that should be only attributed to God, and Jesus allows the kids and the beggar. Blessed is the poor. Blessed is the hungry. As I've told you probably weekly, I believe that everything that Jesus does in his ministry all comes back to the Sermon on the Mount as he illustrates those truths in his life. Jesus then quotes Psalm 8-2 out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have prepared praise. Verse 17, what a sign of judgment here. And leaving them, he went out to the city. He goes back to Bethany. Back to Bethany. Next we see this picture, right? Jesus curses the fig tree. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found it nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And the disciples saw it. They marveled, saying, How how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, which is probably the Mount of Olives or or the Temple Mount that Jesus is looking at, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. I don't know about you, but as a new Christian or a person that maybe is not very familiar with the Scripture, you ask the question, Why does Jesus get ticked at the tree? Right? Why does Jesus get upset at the tree? Why does does Jesus curse the tree? Now, I've probably done way more study on fig trees than you have this week and probably know a little bit more about them than maybe you do. But fig trees, it it was believed um, that during the, the time that the land flowing with milk and honey was filled with olive groves and fig trees. It was a very common delicacy for many of the Israelites to eat a fig from a fig tree. This particular fig tree, what's it has? The Bible tells us that it has leaves. And according to the Gospel of Mark, it even throws this in there and says, it is not even the season for figs. So it's not even the season for this tree to have its fruit on it. But however, the tree already had leaves. Now, what I learned about fig trees this week is that typically what happens inside of a fig tree is that that fig tree begins to produce fruit. Once it starts to get these small buds of fruit on it, then it produces a leaf or leaves. How do you know if there's fruit on the tree? A fig tree will have leaves. However, it is not the season for this tree or any fig tree to have any fruit on it. 
and yet it is filled with leaves. Did anybody see the problem here? Well, this is, this is what's taking place. Essentially, there's false advertisement here. There's something wrong with the tree. It looked healthy. It has leaves on it. But upon further inspection, imagine all the other fig trees don't have leaves on it, but this one tree over here has leaves on it, and it's out of season. Jesus goes, he goes, well, of course he knows. He goes to it, and and he looks at this thing, and it doesn't have any fruit on it. So upon further inspection, what does Jesus know? That it looks and appears to be healthy, but really this, this tree is sick. There is something wrong internally with this fig tree. So Jesus, using it as a parable, as an illustration to his disciples, curses the fig tree. I guess, I don't know, he's got a pocket full of righteous roundup or something. He casts it on it, and practically right in front of these disciples, it it goes from being this this beautiful fig tree full of leaves to, to, to really rotting down to its very core. Some of the other Gospels, they kind of divide this up and and the disciples see the full effect of the fig tree on the next day. And they're just mesmerized by this. Now, what's the deeper meaning of the fig tree? It actually goes back to the temple worship and the problem that Jesus had there. Fig trees throughout the Old Testament, like in Micah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 8, was a common illustration of the Israelites. It was a common illustration of the Jews. Jesus takes the opportunity to use this tree as an illustration to to explain to disciples what they had just witnessed inside of the temple. The temple was awe-inspiring from a distance. But upon closer inspection, what does Jesus find out? That it's filthy. That the temple was fruitless, where they're supposed to be worshiping its beauty, it's all this, this grandeur, it's, it's covered in gold, it was attractive, people were to come and, and to go there and to worship, and yet when Jesus shows up upon further inspection, what does he realize, what does he know? That it is a fruitless place, that worship is not taking place inside of the people of Israel, that they are sick that they are diseased, that they are filthy. They honored God with their lips and ceremonies, but it was in vain. There was no depth. There was no transformation. There was no fruit. They were just going through the motions. Remember last week, Jesus weeps over the nation's unbelief, and the coming day with the temple would be destroyed, which happened in 70 AD as God sent the Romans just to crush the temple mount. Jesus is foreshadowing that judgment. He's turning over the stones that day because they're not worshiping. And one day, he will send the very pagans, the very Gentiles that they're trying to get rid of to destroy the house of God. To destroy it. You know, something that's interesting is even to this day in 2017, that temple has never been rebuilt. You can go there You'll see a lot of ruins, and guess who's in charge of it? The Muslims. Muslims. Did you know that today that the Jews are still looking for a political Messiah? 
Orthodox Jews don't want anything to do with Jesus. They're still looking for an earthly political king to give them their land back. They're still looking to have all of their land back. I heard uh, a remark this week that it takes a jet um, from their army three minutes to fly across the entire country. That's how small Israel is. This land that once flowed with all of these trees and milk and honey, it's not like that anymore. And there's the constant sound of bombs being heard going off daily. Jesus is desiring for this place, this community, to be once again a place of authentic worship, a place of authentic prayer. He, he, he doesn't want us to give, and he doesn't want them to give off this idea that they're healthy and that they're good. And yet it's not real. There's something going on. There's a sickness. What does this reveal about Jesus and what he does? Man, first thing it does is it shows us that Jesus is the better prophet, priest, and king, that Jesus has all authority. Again, a room, 35 acres, at least the outer courts, I don't know how much of that 35 acres it is, but Jesus shows up and cleans house. These people are running. Grown men are running at the authority of Jesus. And you say, man, how does one man do that? Well, if, if, if he can say, let there be light, surely he can clear a room full of dudes. Jesus has all authority. The second thing that we need to get this morning is this, is that Jesus is really serious about whether or not his people or people who are claiming to know him are authentically worshiping him. He's not lost his seriousness. Jesus cannot be fooled. Jesus cannot be fooled. Brothers and sisters, let's just face it. Friends, people, proclaimers of Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in each one of our hearts. Jesus knows exactly if it is authentic. Jesus cannot be fooled. He knows everything about you. So what are the implications of this passage for us? Later on in 1 Peter, Peter will tell us this in chapter 4, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Brothers and sisters, friends, it is important for us to understand that the same Jesus that marched into that temple is the same Jesus that is alive and well. And there are many of us that are really consumed with what non-believers have going on in the state of our world and the, the things that we see on television and coming out of Hollywood and all, all of these sorts of things. And I, I'm not saying that there's not a place to be concerned with that. However, I want you to know that, that Jesus is concerned even more so um, with what's going on amongst those who claim to know him. He is more concerned about what is taking place inside of Mission Church today and, and, and the other places that, 
uh, of people have gatherings of people in them that are claiming to be followers of Jesus. Because he knows, brothers and sisters, whether or not we have come here to truly worship Jesus and that our lives reflect a worship of Jesus or if we are a false convert. A person just going through the motions. Jesus is serious about this. We go to the book of Revelations where he's standing outside the church. And they're having church inside of there. And Jesus is standing on the outside, knocking on its door, but no one will answer. You get the weird picture that they is? They're in there singing songs about Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. They're, they're reading the Bible. And yet Jesus is outside the congregation. Knocking on the door saying, if any man will, will, though I stand at the door and knock, if any man will open up the door, I will come in and sup with them. But the church keeps about its business. The people keep about its business. And it is not the business of worshiping Jesus. It is empty religion. You need to get, let's get real. The other six days this week, if your life is not, if my life is not one that mirrors authentic worship of Jesus, I want you to know you have wasted your time being here this morning. Because it's just empty. It is empty cultural Christianity at its finest. If you are not deeply in love with the church, but you claim to be a proclaimer of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, I want you to know it is empty worship. It is empty. It is false motives. It is decorating yourself with all the gold and all. It, it is coming and living, you know, six days or 51 weeks out of the year like these Israelites, but then showing up and claiming to have intimacy with God, walking away feeling better about yourself, and then living life however you want to live it. And I want you to know that this has been a curse and a problem, not only for the Israelites, but also for those of us who claim to follow Jesus. It happened inside the Catholic Church. This is one of the reasons why Martin Luther eventually stood up and nailed the 95 Thesis to the door. Why? Because the Catholic Church believed at this time that you could pay for grace. It's called indulgences. That you could pay God, give him earthly money, and he would show you grace. This is not the pagan Satanistic temple down the road. Church sign out front says, you know, Jesus church. And that Martin Luther has to, to stand up and, and to say, man, this, this is the problem. You cannot buy God's grace. Ian Bound, he was a minister in the 1800s, once said this, the church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. Brothers and sisters, the commercialization of the American church especially, I want you to know, is an attracting, lustful, craving into our sinful nature and eyes, a beautiful thing, but I want you to know it is no faith at all. Coming on a Sunday morning and treating this place or, or treating this gathering like a confessional booth where you can just kind of get, sing some songs, make you feel a little bit lighter, hear you know, a motivational speech, and then go out here and it has no effect on Sunday afternoon or Monday morning or Tuesday or how you're a father or how you're a mother or how you raise your kid or how you're an employee. I want you to know that is no faith. It has leaves. And let's all face it. 
If you've ever been to a Minute Mart before, you've seen fake roses. They're red like a rose. They got a stem like a rose. They'll even put the little water thing on the bottom of it. They'll even spray it with your grandma's perfume to make it smell like a rose. I've even seen them take a hot glue gun and dab a little on it to make it look like a drop of water. But your wife knows the difference. If you show up with a dozen plastic roses from Minute Mart, or, or a dozen roses that are real, she knows the difference. My fear is, brothers and sisters, that many of us, please, I, I weep for you, I beg of God to do something inside of our lives. If you, I get scared every time I hear someone say, and I get what you're saying, but every time that I hear someone say, man, following Jesus is just, it's just the best way to live. It's the best way to raise your kids. I want you to know you've, you've missed it. You've missed this. You have missed it because the people that we see in the New Testament have been radically saved by Jesus and their lives are producing fruit because their hearts have been transformed. They suffer for this. And they have to fight it every day. It's not the, the easiest ways to live. It's not their best life now. No, it is a, a suffering because we want to be like Jesus kind of lifestyle. It is a wartime lifestyle. And we as a church, man, we're always, aren't we? Even, even at mission, we can fall into this trap. Man, we're, we're always looking for, man, that one event to make us explode numerically or that, that one program that if we, if we only had this or we only had that. And yet, brothers and sisters, there is no magic bullet. God has called us to the process of what Mark Dever, preacher, pastor, influence in Justin and I's life, the process of slow sanctification. Not an overnight success. He has called us, not for some big camp event, not some program, not some revival that we can conjure up and put, you know, flyers out and call it revival. No, God has called us to the slow process of sanctification. And you know what that's, how that's done? It's through authentic worship of Jesus, through marathon study, marathon praying, marathon worship, and marathon mission. That's what God has called us to. That's what He's called His people to and yet I come to people all the time. and I mean, let's, let's face it. Uh, for many of us, the only word that we have is what you get on a Sunday morning. That's why we preach loud, long, and proud. Because for some of you, this is the only meal that you're getting of the word. Let it be said, man, you can have a Sunday morning gathering and people will come. You can have a Sunday morning potluck and people will come but have a prayer meeting and few come. It's not exciting. There's not, a, there's not music playing, and now we sometimes do music because people like that. We come sing songs about His, his mercy is more. And yet if, if our attention and our hearts aren't attuned to God and, and that He is the subject, that His 
mercy is more. It is, it's false worship. It is empty worship. He's called us to sacrificial giving of time, talent, treasure, that all of life is dedicated to the worship of this God. And many times we're more concerned about just getting out of here or if all the planets align that allow us to actually come on a Sunday morning or to a Wednesday night or to be involved in church that we are people of convenience. I'll serve as long as it's convenient. And yet the heart of those who've been shaved is, is everything about them. It's everything. Let me ask you this question in closing. Where is the temple today? Well, in Israel... It's a heap of rubbish. Jesus, on the Friday that he's killed, right? At the moment that he's killed, the Bible tells us that the veil to the curtain and the holies of holies is torn in two. It's allowing access. All have access to, to God, to this relationship with Jesus. Growing up, the idea of the temple was always something really interesting. The Bible tells us where the temple is now, and it is not a place of brick and mortar. But it is a people. It is a you. It is an I. It is those of us who have truly been saved by Jesus. We are the temple of God. Some passages for us to read. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. Or you don't know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. 2 Corinthians, Ephesians. Maybe we can get into more of those in missional community groups this week. But we, we see after the cross, death, um, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus no longer dwells inside of brick and mortar. He dwells inside of those whom He has saved. He dwells inside of us. Again, growing up, this idea of us being the temple was typically always used inside of youth group and children's ministry to keep us kids from smoking, having sex, and drinking. Right? Your body's the temple, don't smoke. Right? Anybody, anybody else? Your body's the temple, don't drink. I don't believe that that's what Jesus is getting at. Now, there can be obviously some wisdom in refraining from those things, especially intimacy until your marriage, and plus smoking just makes you smell like you've been to hell. All right? And it'll give you cancer. If there's any other reason, I don't know if it's spiritual, those are two good ones. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is getting at that, man, your heart this morning is a temple. And I believe that's for believers and non-believers. The question is, what is that heart worshiping? Is there righteous fruit? Or have you just got polished leaves? Do you look healthy on the exterior? Can you come to church and, and pretend, man, I, I'm a part of this. I got this. Look, look at, at, at all this stuff that I can do. I'm, I'm religious, and yet Jesus is after something much, much deeper than that. He is after the temple of your heart. And if Jesus was to show up to Mission Church this morning or to show up and, and to get past all the leaves, what would he find resting inside of your temple?
what would he find? If Jesus was to walk into your heart this morning, would he have to turn over some tables? Would he have to clear rooms so that that one and only true God could be worshipped? Do you bear fruit or do you produce leaves? Fruits does not save you. However, authentic salvation always produces fruit. Every time. Salvation affects the whole person. Your intellect, your emotions, your ability to work, your relationships. Or, brothers and sisters, are we a false advertisement? Do we profess belief as the Jews did, but it was not a priority? Are we like the Jews who are expecting to connect with God no matter how we live? Go through the Sunday morning motions. Again, no effect on Monday. The main issue that Jesus is fighting against here and that he's also foretelling as the great true prophet is judgment is coming for those who do not obey him and worship him with all of their lives. All their lives. Your money, your time, your relationships, how you work, what you watch on television, what you listen to the radio. Again, none of those things will save you. But there is fruit. But you know what's scary in America? Is we have created a, a Christianity that welcomes, embraces, and encourages the growing of leaves. And we call that Christianity. And if everybody's a diseased fig tree who's just got leaves but no fruit, then this is how we all act. Jesus takes this very seriously. And so should we, brothers and sisters. I beg God to move in your life. I beg God to continue to move my life. And I beg God to continue to move in Mission Church's life because we have not arrived. But we must stop the pretending. And as we individually stop the pretending, then we corporately will stop the pretending. And this gathering this house not this but this will be a place of deep petition of god in faith and prayer and worship study and authentic community as god produces fruit from our hearts let's pray